0: Mackenzie what's up can I be like really vulnerable with you for a second
1: I mean always yeah
0: I, I don't know how to ask this but what what exactly is a
1: reservoir dog <sighs> listen if you're not cool enough to know you don't get to know well fuck me right <laughs> that's what I get for trusting people fair enough Righty fam. Welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Lamar. And we are drinking and watching apart today. This is for the first time. For the first time. Are you having separation anxiety? I am. I am.
0: Did you guys know you can record podcasts on the internet? Or are we the first ones to discover this? I think it's just us. I think nobody else has done this groundbreaking God, the thing before. Things that we have, yeah, revolutionized in this industry. tarantino
1: November, first to do that. <laughs>
0: For real. Recording on the
1: internet, first to do that. You mm-hmm. don't have to be in the same room. No, you don't you don't It is weird though I will say we're trying to like recreate the same experience, but i had to I had to pour just my own drink today, and that was weird so typically, I pour all of mackenzie's drinks is what obviously she's that's his actual job here <laughs> duh no well, with that in mind what uh what are you drinking i didn't I didn't make your drink this week. I need Dietz.
0: Yeah. So I didn't I didn't make a drink. I really just popped a bottle. Janelle had the bright idea of, well, why don't you do a blonde ale as in Mr. Blonde? I decided not to go with one of the, the colorful names of the characters, but instead a different reference of Mr. Pink's because in the opening scene, he says, when I order a coffee at a diner, I expect it to be refilled six times. Oh, so my fucking God, that seemed guy. Excessive, excessive. to me. Excessive. So so what I've got here is uh, from Bottle Logic Brewing, one of my favorite breweries from Anaheim. And this is called Stronger Than Fiction. It is a coffee coconut strong ale. So I got my coffee reference there. What are you drinking? What do you got over there?
1: I also did a beer. It feels like a beer movie. Just quick sidebar. Usually we try to do like a cool call to the movie, right? With a cocktail Mm -hmm. or with a whatever. They don't really drink any alcohol in this movie. So I was like, what are we going to do? And I just thought like, what would these guys drink is really the conclusion that I came to was beer and i'm actually not a big ipa person i kind of there's literally one on the planet that i like and i almost drank it and i immediately was like these guys would make fun of me so hard for drinking this like ipa bitch beer i just thought that i would get roasted at that table with those Guys,
0: I mean, in 1991, a lot of them probably didn't even know what an IPA was. But
1: that's what I mean. If they were around now and all they saw were like IPAs everywhere, I feel like we would be getting judged really hard. And I didn't I just didn't want to be judged at this table. So I felt like a a, an amber ale was the way to go. Shout out to Schilling in uh, Colorado. They do some awesome beer, and this is a really, really good, like, smooth amber ale. Okay, okay. Also, other sidebar before I forget, I think we need to give credit where it's due to Janelle's recurring appearance on this podcast without actually being on the podcast and generating such incredible ideas. So I just want to shout out Janelle. We love you. Your ideas are great. Every time I hear them, I'm super excited to hear them. So cheers to you. She has ideas. She'll never hear this. She doesn't listen to this shit. Oh. Oh, well, fair enough. I mean, she doesn't want to hear you more than
0: she has to. I said, babe, I'm starting a podcast. And she said, are you on it? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then I don't want to listen.
1: Fair. Text me, girl. I'll <laughs> tell you what it's like to work with your man. All that to say, it's actually I'm ready with my beer. I'm super excited to talk about this. Honestly, we have a little spiel for you. So if you don't remember, we are in tarantino November number four and you got the name down it took four weeks and you have and got now the we're about name to quit down. and now we're about to quit doing it yeah.
0: <laughs> until, until next, next year, year. Maybe. maybe i'll get
1: it get it really smooth from the top next year but yeah tarantino November number four our final installment we are talking reservoir dogs the og the first one his first outing as a director i should say asterisk asterisk uh, he had obviously done some other things uh but as a director mm-hmm. this is his first one so Super excited to talk about it, but we also need to give you a quick spiel about it. So, as a reminder, we spoil the shit out of these movies. I'm sure you're sick of hearing that at this point, but I don't know. Maybe this is your first time here. So, we spoil the shit out of these movies. Real quick, going to give you a reminder of the plot. Six criminals with pseudonyms and each strangers to one another are hired to carry out a robbery. The heist is ambushed by police and the gang are forced to shoot their way out. At their warehouse rendezvous, the survivors, realizing they were set up, try to find the traitor in their midst. Super simple recap, but I actually think it hits yeah, all the like high two notes. Sentences, yeah. You Lost
0: me at a Suganim. I can't wait to find out what that is. Yeah, That's exciting. You don't need to learn how words work, Lamar. <laughs> it's fine. You did. You did say that this was Tarantino's first film that he directed. It was actually wasn't supposed to be. He had actually self financed a film. I think three years prior to this. And I believe there was like a fire or something and he lost essentially two thirds. So it didn't end up being a feature. It ended up
1: being a short, but this was almost his second film. Yeah. And he actually did. I actually haven't watched it. So I feel ill-equipped to speak to it, but he did a short version of this film that grew into this film. So kind of, yeah. So this is the fleshed out idea um, that he, you know, fully wrote out, fully directed. And he's like known to make a joke on this set of, he was like, saying that he was the least experienced person on the set you know he's got this like killer cast around yeah. him and it was i think he was saying him and i want to say it was eddie bunker because they were both like pretty new to, to mm-hmm. filming and he was like we're the two least experienced people on this show you know um yes. so you know it but for his first time out let's just start there pretty fucking solid pretty fucking pretty damn solid.
0: good and to his credit which is the opposite of what we get from tarantino nowadays he kept it fucking short and sweet this is about an hour and 39 minutes i really after the three movies we did to start the month mm-hmm. it was wonderful to sit down and know that i only had to sit through an hour and 40 minutes this time
1: i know like listen y'all it, it we love it but it takes work to watch all these movies and yeah. uh and that was a nice reprieve it i think a big part of that is you never see the heist you know, Yes. I like
0: that about this film a lot. You see yeah. a lot of the stuff that happens leading up to it. You see a lot of the stuff that happens after it, but they never actually show you the heist, which is crazy for no. what would be considered by most to be a
1: heist film. Well, and it has won like all kinds of, you know, just kind of culty fan lists for like best heist film. It's really interesting that it is for being one that unlike, say, like a heat, you never see it, you know, um, mm-hmm. but I think I think that's part of the appeal. So yeah, his his first outing definitely shorter heist movie without a heist it was also co-written i will say just to give credit where it's due again at the top hmm. by him and Roger Avery so i did i was not aware of that
0: and i know i have a lot of friends who Prior to Tarantino having 10 films, the question was, well, which do you like better, Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs? And at least back then, it was sort of 50-50 split. There are people that swear by this one, despite, you know, I think Pulp Fiction is leaps and bounds better. I think both are great. Yeah. But I have friends that probably to this day, their opinion is Reservoir Dogs is the best of Tarantino's
1: movies. Yeah, and I wonder if that is, like, some of the nostalgia of it being the first one. Because I think what I will say on this watch, you, I think, noticed more of the flaws in the filmmaking... Yep. Than than you normally would, and that you expect to, and maybe that is by comparison to just watching all of his really matured films yeah. of some of his best work, mm-hmm. and putting those side by side and going, ooh, like I can see where we could have done better here or there. I would almost say, objectively speaking, this is not the best film, and and there are real, I think, limits to how it had to be made. Again, primarily budget related. So I think it's easy to say that his later films are are notably better. But to your point, his second film is Leaps and Bounds Better. So it's like he learned so much yeah. right away. And the success of his this film got him the budget to do that one.
0: Yeah, you know what I mean? he definitely, it feels like he, we, we're seeing so many shades of what he would become as a filmmaker. And we're seeing him sort of. You know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And yeah. there's so many things that he tries in this that don't pan out completely. We could talk of, you know, we're going to get to the opening in a second. I think the entire them walking in slow motion for the opening credits is a little cheese ball to me. But, you know, early 90s filmmaking, thats that was probably a sign of the time. Kind of on then, brand, to be you know, honest. Yeah. yeah, and then later in his other films, he would do similar things of, like, creating these badass
1: characters. But it doesn't feel as kind of ham-fisted as that moment does for me. I mean, what director hasn't been a sucker for a slow-mo moment? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think a, a slow-mo moment makes you just look yeah. so cool and it's, like, so fun <laughs> to do. So I kind of get how he was, like, sucked into doing that in that moment. Yeah. But I totally agree with you that it's... It's a little cheesy. There's also... So Eddie Bunker, really quick, is actually the, the true real-life criminal who is in the cast... And, and he plays Mr. Blue in case. But you... he,
0: I saw that, that factoid. He, did he do something similar to the, not as in getting, you know, six of his friends killed? He was, was a, he, did he steal the He didn't do this story. So this story okay. is completely
1: independent of him. Okay. He was just kind of hired as a consultant in general. And he's actually done that on a few films. But he was the youngest felon in San Quentin. So like he he's he's done his time literally. But he said that there were aspects of this that just really didn't hold water as far as what you would actually do as a criminal, right? You wouldn't all wear matching suits and go to breakfast the day of a heist. And yeah, and like hang out in a public place together and you know, protecting one another's names is not the only, you know, cover you would you would want for yourselves as a as you know, a group of people putting on a heist. So, but Eddie Bunker was like listen it's a fun flick but like it's bullshit you know <laughs> like that yes. would never happen um and i think that's that's at the heart of it right like that's the heart of the slow-mo that's the heart of the outfits right it's like mm-hmm. it's supposed to be fun it's supposed to be a little heisty a little edgy a little 90s cheese ball I think. a little over the top
0: yeah now we mentioned this at the very beginning sort of in jest but to my knowledge do we know what a reservoir dog is do you have any backstory to this title
1: I do, but I will say there are multiple theories about how this title happened, to be fair. So he so Quentin has been asked about this uh, and he has told different stories each time, culminating, I think, in two major theories about this, the the name of this film. One is um, he supposedly went to a production company and saw a bunch of unsolicited scripts under a pile that was labeled Reservoir Dogs. Um, and they're fighting for attention for the
0: people that are for all of us that aren't morons uh, can you re-explain what a (laughs) reservoir is please
1: He's like it's not for souls. not for me at all. I would never need okay. that explanation. I know what a dog is. That part's easy. You're doing great. You're doing great. Cool. But it's it's a source of water, right? It's a water supply, and it, the implication is that you have a bunch of dogs in the bottom of this reservoir, in the bottom of this tank, who are trapped and fighting for attention or a way out right? Another one was that he suggested somebody watch a certain movie. It was, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's kind of a little known film that he suggested. And the person replied back to him and said, I don't want to see no Reservoir Dogs. So he he said both as origins for potentially this name. So it's really, to this day, it's very unclear as to why he named it what he named
0: it. I wonder if this is just some old phrase that doesn't get you but i feel like everything ends I think up so if that's the case it usually ends up on urban dictionary or wikipedia like you can dig into what these random phrases from yesteryear like that feels like something that would have been a term that would have been used in like the 1920s in the south of like oh reservoir dogs like people fighting over or even you know
1: yeah yeah something very obscure or niche yeah, or like regional you know. I, I definitely do feel like it's some kind of regional phrase. I can go get my Why We Say What We Say nerdy book. So, isn't that the name of our podcast? I find it. No, wait. That's We do. No, well, I don't know. I forget the name verbs. of our podcast half okay. the time. So do you want to dig into the
0: actual plot? Like, <laughs> let's go through the story beat by beat. Does that sound like a good plan?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we we got a lot to touch on on all the beats of this story starting us off at the top like again kind of a a notorious famous whatever you want to call it opening scene of them just sitting around this table classic uh and having a conversation
0: of just let's shoot the shit at a table and see what we talk about
1: and there's a lot of theories here about this film in particular that the script is is a lot of improv as well really but i don't buy that to be honest i I was going to ask you what you thought because that whole conversation feels very intentional, yeah. but when you read reviews about it or even just commentary about it, there are a fair number of people who are like, you can tell this is a, you know, this is a, a chill cast who's kind of mm-hmm. riffing on their lines and yada, yada. And I don't know, they land in such a way to me. I, I, I disagree. What you, I think that what the
0: shot think? that's taking place there where it's sort of circling the table, I think there's a very intentional mm-hmm. flow to that and where people are when they deliver their lines I like the thought. It's fun to think of. It feels like an improvisational conversation because it feels like just something random you would talk about, you know. Feels authentic. Yeah, it feels like something that you would just shoot the shit about and it's not that meaningful of a conversation. There's no greater meaning there. But yeah, I would I, I don't buy that.
1: But there is so much meaning there and that's a that's I think a great argument to in your favor too, of there's no way because It feels natural Mm -hmm. to your point, but there is a lot of subtext in that conversation. What's your subtext? Um, Are you
0: talking about specifically the Madonna conversation or the tipping conversation or
1: both? All of it. I think the whole opening scene is full of subtext, all kinds of subtext, or even just commentary. You know, whatever you want to want to call it. But yeah, definitely the Madonna conversation. They're talking about Mm -hmm. like a virgin. Uh, again notorious part of the script in this conversation and, you know they're talking about how uh what like a virgin means and you know it hurts like the first time in the grossest <laughs> way possible and i just have in my notes like ew <laughs> ew but I think some you're of you're supposed the to support other women like
0: Mackenzie. Like Madonna wrote that song "Fair and Square," so
1: I she explicitly told Quentin Tarantino that that's not. Yeah, what but it I means. did
0: see that she sent him like an autograph copy of her album or something. But did, she did. say this is she not was like what here's this song a, is about.
1: Right, she so, was like, "It's not about yeah. a dick." Like she literally was like, "Listen, it's not about a dick." But here, yeah, have have the album. Take another <laughs> listen, probably. Like, listen again, <laughs> dumbass. No, but she says it's not about that. So that's why I was like, ew, why you gotta make it weird, bro? Why well, do for it what it's worth, but, you know, we're gonna, I don't want
0: to spoil this for you because this is my biggest takeaway from watching it this time. We're going to get in in about 10 minutes. I'm going to drop some bombs about the subtext I think I see in this film. So to be fair, you know, Quentin had this theory about Madonna. I'm going to turn it
1: right around on him and s- tell you what I see in this movie. Oh, number one, I'm super excited. Number two, other subtext of this conversation is that Chris Penn is in this movie who is the brother of Sean Penn who was yes. married to Madonna and i don't think that's unintentional that we're having a conversation about a Madonna song you know yeah. like this is kind of like a fun little sidebar i think as well so i think it's a really funny conversation it's definitely gross but it's funny and it's i mean i don't know not to say bros will be bros but bros will be bros sometimes and it's a little bit it's kind of a typical I don't know, dude conversation about a song. And then it's, I just love also that they're like, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? And they're having this, this <laughs> debate about this song at breakfast. Like, it's
0: like, yeah, we're getting ready to go rob a bank, but let's talk about this. Let's debate
1: while. about this song. Exactly. Like they're just so chill, yeah. you know, for what they're about to do. And I think that speaks to this is just yeah this is another day of the week for another them job. really yeah yeah so
0: as we're we're circling around the table here we meet basically our entire main cast in this first scene we go around the table much, yeah we meet Mr White uh, Mr Harvey Keitel. And I didn't realize he was a co-producer on this till I did a yeah. little bit of research. And essentially, he like quadrupled the budget of this film. He read oh, the yeah. script. I think
1: at least. And then some. It was like a $30,000 budget, and it went to $1.5 after he got involved. Yeah. So if you like this
0: movie, you owe a little bit of that to Harvey Keitel for jumping in and throwing some money at but it. But
1: he asked to be in it. I uh-huh. think that's the really interesting part of it. It's like, yeah, he became a producer for all the reasons that you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he sought it out. Like... Quentin basically was like I wouldn't even have asked. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have thought I could have gotten a Harvey Keitel in this movie and yes. I think it's awesome that he did.
0: Yeah, you got Mr. Orange, aka Tim Roth. Perpetually yeah. bloody in this. They should have called him Mr. Crimson. Right? but he should have
1: been Mr. Pink to be honest.
0: He's just covered all movie in blood. Uh, to the point where apparently he was like sticking to the floor at times, like between cuts, because the blood, whatever the corn syrup and stuff he was using would literally, they would have to come and pull him up off the floor because he was just stuck to the ground. He's
1: just stuck to that like wood that he's laying on. Ugh, gross. <laughs> you
0: got Mr. Michael Madsen playing Mr. Blonde. And what I think, I mean... I've never been a huge Michael Madsen guy, to be honest. I think a lot of the stuff he did after this was fine. You know, he's got little bit parts in a few other Tarantinos. We talked about Hateful Eight last week. He's in Sin City, which is Robert Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. But he just feels a little over the top in those. In this one, I just wrote the, the note of he is the coolest in this movie that he will ever be all sociopathic tendencies aside i'm like michael madsen <laughs> in this as a young dude very cool
1: he he oozes cool i'll give you that he does ooze yeah. cool he oozes crazy like you said he oozes sociopath <laughs> yeah. but he does ooze cool and just like nothing uh, ruffles his feathers even things that should yes and we'll get some more
0: of him as we get into the plot we've got the one and only mr steve buscemi here is mr uh, pink doesn't want to be called mr pink but doesn't really have a choice in the matter little and bitch we talked about, about it, hateful eight <laughs> we called it uh, we talked about hateful eight last week and i didn't never made this parallel but of walton goggins and i'm just like tarantino likes to put some weird looking gentlemen in some of his movies it
1: seems. he does and maybe weird's like i you know i hate to say so- something negative about somebody's appearance something they can't unique, control unique. but yeah That's what I meant and i know say. you didn't mean it maliciously i just mean yeah what is the word because it is it's it's just unique it's it's mm-hmm. uh different it's very different looking
0: well i mean you want to stand out in hollywood there's there's certain ways to do that everyone's beautiful not every you know right
1: why, why be beautiful and think that, about that those people who part. get those parts over and over like probably at least partially due to their uniqueness their unique look
0: yeah you uh, you mentioned Eddie Bunker yep. playing Mr. Blue, the real-life felon turned actor in this case. You mentioned Chris Penn playing nice guy Eddie, the son of the mob boss. We didn't mention Quentin Tarantino himself already making a habit of shoving himself into his own movies. You know, he Mr. wanted Brown. to be Mr. Pink, so he he cut his role down quite a bit. <sighs> So he's. I think he's only directing to try and further his career as an actor, maybe. He's like, you know what? Let me just get a he's little better every It's like, if I direct movie. myself,
1: then they have to give me the job, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. And then finally, who I would consider our last main cast member of this whole thing is Mr. Lawrence Tierney as Joe, who is sort of the mob boss. Now, did you read up at all on how big of a pain in the ass
1: this guy was on set? A hundred percent. I think it's pretty legendary, actually. I don't know that I read up on it so much as I remember people bitching about him quite a bit. I mean, they will still bitch about it in current interviews about this movie huh. 20 years later. Like Steve Buscemi has said it, Michael Madsen has said it, Quentin Tarantino has said it. Like we're talking 20, 30 years on, they're like, God, that guy was a fucking asshole. <laughs>
0: yeah. In a movie full of dicks, this guy in real life managed to be the biggest dick of all. Yeah. Apparently he almost came to blows with Tarantino himself, like a physical altercation because yeah. he was, I guess in his throughout his entire acting career, he was a noted, you know, alcoholic unfortunately Mm -hmm. but let his temper get the best of him he got arrested during the filming of this for getting drunk and shooting at his nephew yeah
1: and he had to get picked up from booking and driven straight to set
0: that definitely changes uh my view of this film a little bit when i'm watching it because i'm just like you know joe is this very he's probably I guess aside from Mr. Blonde, he's probably the scariest character in this whole thing as far as just the intimidation He's scary
1: but stable, you know? Yeah, so it's almost different. He's a mastermind. Yeah, definitely not who this person was at all. I think he got fired off the film, if I recall correctly. I don't remember exactly, but he also almost came to blows with uh, Michael Madsen, who by all accounts is a pretty chill dude. Like, in real life. Yeah, and when I
0: say I'm not a huge Michael Madsen fan, it's not for lack of him being a chill dude. No, yeah. It's just that his acting ability doesn't do a lot for me. No, he's not the best actor. And if you want my Exhibit A, just go watch the first, like, six minutes of Sin City. So... (laughs) Let's go to the second (laughs) half of that conversation. We've met our entire cast aside from, you know, some, some little cameos here or there. We also have the cop that's going to come into play later, but the tipping debate, what subtext did you read into that? I'm really (laughs)
1: curious here. Well, I don't know that it was like subtext so much as it was straight up fucking overt of Mm -hmm. the actual debate that, every reasonable person who tips has had with a monster who doesn't and uh, <laughs> I just remember like hearing that again and in, in great detail one it goes on for a long time and this is where I would argue maybe subtext of Quinn has got to be making a statement here he's like listen this is for the benefit of the masses that you need <laughs> to learn that tipping is important because it does it goes on for a while and I I, of course, agree with everyone who's ganging up on Mr. Pink that you need to tip. And yeah, to your point earlier, six times, six times to refill your coffee, <laughs> sir.
0: That's the that's the expectation. So then we jump into we get that iconic opening credits of the cast walking and they're all matching suits about to go rob a bank in yes. slow motion. We Anything else to add there? I don't have much there, but I just I remember watching this and thinking it was much cooler when i was 20 years old as opposed to when i watched it the other night
1: i don't other than what we already said where it's like such a sucker move and i mean that in the best way of like you got to do a slow-mo moment here and there once in a while so i get that it's kind of fun it's kind of over the top but i need to go back to the coffee for a second okay not just the coffee the the breakfast no listen i need to know i wanted to ask you this before we move on he does the world's smallest violin thing (laughs) and i need to know is this the first iteration of that i did not look it up on purpose i i know that we as kids in our youth heard this a lot all the time all the time is this where that came from i'm
0: sure it had been used you know by other people but maybe i this guess is the was first it made popular by this film yeah Maybe. I have I no idea. But I, Tarantino strikes me as the kind of person who wouldn't want to use a gag or a joke or a line that someone else had already used, unless it's yeah. a direct homage. But for something like that that's meant to be humorous, I don't think he would want to try and steal something that had already been in another movie.
1: Or that's just like really popular. I mean, sure, I yeah. think maybe it's a phrase that gets used now and again, but I think this is maybe where it was popularized, and that was... Mm-hmm. I know people my age now who will still make that reference, and I'm like... Look at you go, Quentin, with your <laughs> with your world's smallest violin origination. Yeah, oh, yeah. I had to touch on that. The other mm-hmm. thing I liked was as much as he clearly was a pain in the ass, um, Lawrence Tierney, I just love that his his ending of that whole debate is like, just give your fucking buck. Yeah, like, like I bought your breakfast. I bought your fucking breakfast, just give your buck, shut the fuck up, let's move on. And I just I thought it was the the greatest way to settle that debate.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we jump from those opening credits. And then we get sort of the the audio cut. You get a cameo from comedian Stephen Wright there with his notoriously deep voice as the DJ in this film.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say we got to touch on Stephen Wright. We didn't list him in the in the cast at the beginning, but uh, definitely have to touch on him. His you don't have to even know his comedy mm-hmm. or be a fan of his to just know his voice yep. immediately as soon as you hear it you're like oh there he is there he is so yeah i loved that addition kind of throughout yeah yeah leave it to tarantino to sort of like make a character
0: who's not a character but you don't need that dj necessarily mm-hmm. but somehow it makes the universe this is taking place in feel more real yeah they actually you know do mention the radio station at the diner scene of like, Oh, look at what songs they're playing here and what songs they're playing here. So it's in a way he is a character in the film without having much of an impact aside from queuing up the music that we're going to hear later, which does become important.
1: Does become important. Yeah. I agree with you. He's a character without ever being seen. And I love those, those little cameos, like you said, but I do think like the whole thing, even from the very beginning, you can feel the budget of it all. Uh, mm-hmm. but I think it dissipates pretty quickly. I don't know if you felt that of just like, yeah, we know this was this was done on a tight budget, but you again get into the story and the writing quickly enough that I think it's kind of an immediate distraction almost of mm-hmm. shit starts going down pretty quick, you know?
0: Yeah, they throw you right into it. Throw and- you right into it. We'll get to the fact that we're going to arrive at the actual warehouse where the majority of this film takes Mm -hmm. place. And to your point of the budget, you know, 80% of this film, I would say 70% of this film takes place in one shooting location. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. think that was just a story decision necessarily. Mm -mm. But I want to talk really quickly about the first scene post-opening credits where... We hear the dialogue from Mr. Orange and Mr. White in the mm-hmm. car before we actually see them. We get this transition from yeah. the, the music into their dialogue. And we don't, we're going to see the video later, which I think is cool that it circles back to that scene. But here's my big takeaway from this watch through of Reservoir Dogs. So on this on is for you, seat. Madonna. Is <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, could any part of you interpret this as a
1: very queer
0: friendly film? Yeah,
1: for yeah. sure. I mean, I hadn't considered that till you just said it, so forgive me for the delay there, but yeah, I I mean, I think for sure. I, I shouldn't say I didn't consider it at all because there are a couple of moments, of course, that are uh, a, a little like... In, e- they make reference to some sort of homosexual mm-hmm. leaning one way or the other, whether it's mm-hmm. making fun of it or blowing right past it or, or, or whatever, but it, it touches on the reality of homosexuality being a thing in a very accepting way and i think that's great for again especially in early 90s film where you know not quite as pervasive as we would have liked for it to be quite as accepting but yeah no i agree i think it, i think it definitely can and i think there's an immediate bond with mm-hmm. mr white and mr orange which is maybe where you're going with this um yes. that alludes to uh, the possibility of that for sure yeah So I'm not going to be, you know,
0: one of those college film majors who's writing an essay about why these two characters are, you know, factually homosexual. I'm not going to say that. But I will say, after watching this opening scene and then tracking it through the rest of the film, I do have some evidence to present as we go along that that might have been Tarantino's intent. And to your point, like, you know, we associate Quentin Tarantino with this sort of machismo of these very what's the word i'm looking for just over the masculine top, testosterone masculine characters and, yeah. murderers and psychopaths and yeah. professional hitmen and all that I find it very interesting, the amount of sort of things that I came across in here. And it starts with that first scene of them in the car. And clearly he's comforting his friend. There's no doubt that they are friends. They've sort of moved past the, the fake stage names that they're using for this heist. And he's holding his hand. Mr. White is trying to comfort him. And they arrive at the warehouse. Mr. White drags him inside, lays him down. And Mr. Orange says aloud, I'm scared. Please hold me. Again, you can interpret this in many ways. I'm sure that's been said by folks at war and folks that have been shot and have that fear of death, like, hold Mm -hmm. me, there's no one else here. We get the scene of, you know, Mr. White, it's kind of played as a gag and it's kind of cute, actually, where he combs... Mr. Orange's hair just yeah. to make the situation a little less yeah. scary for him and they both giggle a little bit.
1: Little anecdotal moment there for me. It reminded me so much of my grandfather, uh, rest in peace, David Garcia, uh, mm. one of my one of my favorite people in the world. He combed his hair in every situation. I mean, in the middle of church, at dinner, when somebody was upset, when somebody had died. That's what made me think of it. Like grandpa would do that. Grandpa would like comfort you by combing his hair. (laughs) All
0: right, Well, shout out, Grandpa. You're a legend. And let's jump back into the story here. So, you know, we get this opening scene of white and orange reaching the warehouse. Orange is bleeding out on the floor. White is comforting him. And then Mr. Pink shows up.
1: Can we talk really quick, though, about the getting to the warehouse? Because that is something I need to touch on and i don't know if this is a production thing or is this just me being a speed demon but i was enraged slightly by how slow harvey keitel aka mr white is driving did you notice the background is going so slow and i did not notice this on previous watches but i was like this motherfucker is dying and you are driving five miles per hour gramps speaking of grandpas my grandpa drove really fast what are you doing i
0: mean but we did point out that there wasn't much of a budget on this, so maybe they just couldn't afford one of those guys in front that's actually driving the car while the actor is pretending to drive the car. Maybe Harvey Keitel had to drive safe because he was really driving while he was acting. It's hard to multitask.
1: I mean, I would not at all be surprised, but I can tell you that it was very distracting to me because I was like, if this is a true emergency, which of course yeah. it is, uh, you're hauling fucking ass. And I was super offended by the lack of hauling ass. But yes, yes anyway, they do get to this warehouse eventually (laughs) but speaking of other slow things the other thing that upset me about that was once they got to the warehouse he does do this very sweet thing he combs his hair i love this moment for them but as soon as uh mr pink makes his appearance and comes on in and is like hey we we have a rat in the house right and like they go off have this conversation separate from mr orange so as to kind of hopefully at least keep the stress away from him totally get it of let's go have this separate conversation and you know kind of protect this guy who's literally dying from the stress of that but they were gone for like so he could have bled out by they this did, point yeah like he could have bled out while they were gone and they didn't even check on him he sort of like they show Kaitel like poking his head around the corner once or twice and sort of looking at him but maybe not even looking at him and i just remember being so anxious that whole time going like are we gonna check on this guy he's bleeding out and i next also room. thought it, I, it just I thought it was so interesting
0: long. to watch again second third fourth watch through and if you haven't seen this, this is your last warning but knowing that mr orange is the undercover is the rat he's a cop watching him Mm -hmm. during these scenes because i noticed that as soon as mr pink comes in and i think this might just be coincidence but orange has his gun in his hand as if when mr pink starts Mm -hmm. talking about there being a rat he's worried that he might have to kill these two guys to stop them from killing him yeah and when they say hey let's go into the other room and talk he tries to get mr white to stay and i'm i'm wondering how much of that is he's worried about what they're gonna say in the other room without him being there to hear it
1: yeah, cuz he knows he can't get in there and he can't listen right now and and who knows if they come out and they just try to kill him. But but again, there's only so much he's literally physically capable of at this moment, so he has to kind of let it happen. But I absolutely agree. I think that's part of his mm-hmm. stress in those moments of like how do I keep this from getting out, you know, and how do I keep them from figuring this out about me? And this is always hard to do, I think in retrospect, but do you feel like you had suspicions in your very first watch that it was Mr. Orange or are you just seeing some of these things now? I'm noticing it now. I think the film does a great job
0: of throwing you for a loop that first time through because you assume, sure. well, the guy that got shot, he's not going to be the cop. But I actually thought this was interesting on this watch where mm-hmm. White kind of says, hey, it's, you know, he he's defending him to Mr. Pink. It says, like, I saw him get shot. He doesn't let pink know that he was shot by a random
1: bystander but he says it earlier very subtly he says she shot me did you believe she was gonna shoot me mr orange does say that and he says something and i don't remember the exact line but he says something about her having a baby or something about a baby or a kid or something like that i can't remember what the phrase is so i never assumed that a cop shot him because that would be an indicator that he was Isn't that a not... little
0: sexist of you, though, to assume that there's no lady cops?
1: No, but I'm saying he meant the mentioning of the baby. The mentioning of, like, cops are allowed she had a kids. baby.
0: Maybe it was bring your daughter to work day. <laughs> I'm just trying. I'm sorry. What I'm cop is bringing,
1: what <laughs> cop is bringing her daughter to this work day of all work days. You like, know? The day
0: that we're going to have the sting. Come <laughs> the on. Day that we're going to have the
1: sting operation. Get in the back, baby. Let's go with mom for a ride along. Yeah. No, this did not feel like the day for that to me. So I just remember that cueing me of like, it couldn't have been a cop. So it doesn't, I, I, I don't know that I would say that I knew it for sure, but I remember being frustrated mm-hmm. that Mr. White, wouldn't allow for the fact because he was like well he got shot. If that's it was somebody why,
0: that's why I think that white is allowing this
1: bond they have whether you think it's just 100%. friends or something
0: else to cloud his judgment.
1: It totally is. I totally agree with that. 100%. I think Mr. White and him have bonded over the course of the prep for this heist and and yeah, that is absolutely clouding his judgment. He's not even considering the possibility. Yeah, and the fact that he doesn't point that out to Pink at all. He just says he was shot as he if just that says he was shot. him exactly yes. exactly he makes a point not to say by whom uh, totally yeah. totally
0: so we get our first official flashback of the movie it's fairly brief it's really just going back to post heist of seeing how pink made his way to the warehouse we do get our very first quentin tarantino wilhelm scream in this scene of him mm-hmm. pushing someone randomly and them letting yeah. out this classic scream that you've heard in you know dozens of films to this point so i thought that was fun uh anything to say about that flashback it wasn't super long or eventful it wasn't
1: super long i remember literally writing in my notes like these fucking cops can't run for shit and they're not even donut cops they're like <laughs> They're like thin dudes and they all just look like very lackluster running. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, I was just like, this yeah. is a weak ass chase. That's my literal only. Yeah. Note, is, this is a weak ass chase. <laughs> yes, I will say the chase
0: itself is pretty well shot. And then we jump back to the warehouse where, as we said, you know, they're sort of debating. They get into an argument and then we go to a white flashback. So we see yeah. his sort of experience here. And a couple things I wanted to call out here were that. He mentions a Marcellus
1: Spivey, and I'm just wondering, does Tarantino love the name Marcellus? Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up because this is in my notes as well. One, Marcellus Wallace from Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. as we know, who appears in, in the next film. But also he wrote True Ma- Romance, which mm-hmm. is Drexel Spivey, mm-hmm. and that's played by Gary Oldman. So yeah, I absolutely think it's an homage to his other his other work for yeah. sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, now is the
0: better, this is the last week of Tarantino members, so we might as well go ahead and have this conversation. We talked about red apples last week, but the potential relations between characters in Tarantino movies. So, for example, in this, Mr. White is the brother of Jimmy in Pulp Fiction, also played by Quentin Tarantino. Don't ask me how that works, but they have the same last name. So, again, you could say it's a coincidence, but why the hell would Tarantino use the exact same last name in consecutive films i don't know unless he thought there was some sort of relation there
1: well it's vic vega and vincent vega that 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 stand out for me i didn't actually even notice the the mr white one But I did notice the Vega one and and he's talked about, well, I don't think it's him actually, but it was like Michael Madsen has talked about how they had talked about doing a brother film because they are brothers. They're established, Mm -hmm. Vic Vega and Vincent Vega are established to be brothers and they had talked about doing a prequel
0: yeah you know it depends on who you believe other people say that originally Michael Madsen was supposed to play Vincent in Pulp Fiction but because he couldn't shoot or couldn't get any scheduling that's when John Travolta was brought in and then they became so whether he was going to play the other brother or whether it was going to be some sort of prequel with Mr. Blonde in it I have no idea but that's a rumor as well
1: I think he was gonna be I think the story is that he's gonna he was gonna be Vic Vega which is who he Mm -hmm. is in Reservoir Dogs uh but because he couldn't, they introduce Vincent Vega, his brother. Yeah. So that was my understanding of it at least. But yeah, there's so many cool little <laughs> references yeah. to these other films. I love it a lot. But I didn't notice about Mr. White. No, I didn't even catch that on this time around. Yeah, so I forget what
0: the last name is. I would have to IMDB it, but it's like dim trick or dim trick like it's it's not a it's not you know, a yeah. fairly simple name it's definitely
1: the the reference is meant to be there there is a reference to him and her though patricia arquette in true romance uh mr white when okay. he's talking about the woman uh that he you know was doing some jobs with that's her from true romance and uh, okay okay and, and they didn't come back so i do know about that one but yeah i didn't know about the other one yeah. Um, Jimmy Dimick. Sorry. Jimmy so, Dimick. Okay.
0: One of one of one. It's interesting that not only does Tarantino appear in both films playing one of the brothers, but Kaitel appears in both films <laughs> portraying one of the brothers. And then he's the wolf, obviously, in Pulp Fiction. So we move into, we come back from the flashback and now we get a little bit of escalation between pink and white. It's interesting to me that the two most logical characters what it feels like in the movie of they're really talking through you think there was a rat yes i think there was a rat and they're sort of trying to make sense of everything but they are consummate professionals throughout this whole thing but they end up drawing guns on each other and i think what spurs that is the relationship between white and orange and just of them you know panicking a little bit until mr blonde shows up what do you want to say about mr blonde michael Madsen?
1: So many fucking feelings about this guy, Uh, not least of which about the trunk shot. (laughs) We get our trunk shot from Mr. Blonde's car, which is actually Michael Madsen's car. Another budget uh, issue Mm -hmm. there as well. But I just love that we we get the classic trunk shot. And this is the first time. He, like we said earlier, I don't think we have a ton that we need to double tap here. But I will just say he does just kind of ooze cool, like we said. He yeah. seems like nothing is phasing him. He is kind of charming in this weird way. But he's also infuriating because he has these really sociopathic behaviors. Yeah. And then, of course, he's completely minimizing the blow up of this heist that he just did because i quote i don't like alarms <laughs> i cool. mean we all have things that make I us also don't like alarms <laughs> i don't murder 30 people or whatever it ends up being and and then you never get a solid body count i've read a lot of uh, a lot of theories about what the body count is but the point is he shot up a lot of fucking people yes. because he doesn't like alarms and because he told them not to and it's like listen what's done is done the alarm is going off you know, yes. it doesn't help you to murder all these people, but he does it anyway. So, again, like going back to his very sociopathic nature, it's scary. It's very yeah. scary to hear him talk about these things so calmly while sitting on a hearse. Like, I, that's not lost on me either. He's just yeah. chilling on the top of a hearse like it's no big deal. So, yeah, I think he's a really scary character. And, you know, we see that obviously right away. Yes, I think his character his coolness
0: is infuriating at times it's crazy to see harvey Keitel at his you know one of his emotional high points in this film and he's looking for a fight he's looking to to get a reaction out of mr blonde and mr blonde is just sitting and he can't go to him into it he's just you know sipping on his soda chilling on and relaxed
1: well he literally the opening shot and like man this is where it's annoying to like be sucked into the cool his first shot is cool man He's like leaning up against that pole. Mm-hmm. He's got a soda water from whatever fast food place that he just popped in to get on his way to the hideout. He's like, I can't go to the hideout <laughs> without what? A burger and fries and a, and a drink. And he's, he's just, a nervous eater. Yeah. He's a nervous eater is what it yeah. is. But he is chilling against that wall like nothing has happened. And he's just sipping on his drink. And it's, un- it's unnerving. And I think, obviously, that it is meant to be. Right, yeah. Like this is the guy who just shot everything up and he just shows up like nothing happened and, and sipping on a drink and ready to just just chill and wait for them. And also has no real concern about the rat situation, which is the other thing I think he's not thinking any of it through. Cause he doesn't really care.
0: And I find that honestly, if we talked earlier about how, yes, this is Tarantino's first film and he's sort of just seeing what works and Blonde is a character who I feel it doesn't feel real to me because of that, because he's so cool, calm and collected. And even yeah. when he goes in later in the story, to, or it's a flashback, but he's talking to Joe and Eddie about getting back to work. None of these vibes like it feels like a family relationship. And it's strange to me that Eddie seems to have no knowledge. Joe seems to have no knowledge of what a loose cannon this guy is. Maybe you could say it's a product of him being in prison and this being his first job out of prison, but it's just strange to me that this character, no one picks up on this psychopath
1: tendencies until it happens twice in the same day. I don't know. I think it's honestly, I think it's, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I think it's simpler than that. I think it's once you do a real solid for someone and or ingratiate yourself to that person in some way, you write off a lot of other shit, right? Like once this guy went to jail for them, and didn't talk for them. Maybe they noticed some tendencies. Maybe they had some concerns. Who knows what happened before. But the point Mm -hmm. is, this guy went in the slammer and he didn't give up anybody. And he did it for years. And I think that's all that matters to them, even if they were aware of these other tendencies.
0: I hear you. I think the thing that I like the most about what you said is that you used like the 1940s terminology of referring to prison as the slammer. (laughs) <laughs> i you know i will i'm for i'm here for it so thank you for that
1: listen it just came out and i thought it also really rolled off the tongue so thank you for acknowledging yeah,
0: yes it. so we do get a flashback here of a little more backstory as we said on the mr blonde character of seeing his interaction and we get a little bit more homoeroticism here in my opinion of him and eddie rustling on the office of the dad, and you see this funny, oh, sure. like, playful relationship and they're talking about the it
1: they they Go into some dialogue about that said homoeroticism and you can see it playing with you're about to cross a line and it's about to be a real fight and it just Mm -hmm. tiptoes right across that the whole time. So like the homoeroticism and almost the acceptance to some degree of the homosexuality is there, but then so is the homophobia. It's right on the other side of and that line. And I mean,
0: I, look, I'm not going to say that I've done a lot of research on this kind of stuff, but I, isn't that fairly common, right? Like some of the yeah. people who are the most hateful and fearful yeah. of homosexuality, it, a lot of it comes from repression, right? Sure. And that might be something that's happening here. I think that in this film... Maybe this is, you know, me making up ideas on the spot, but you've got Mr. White blinded by his own feelings for Mr. Orange, whether it's friendship or something else, and Mm -hmm. him being like, well, he can't be the rat. And then you've got Eddie and Joe saying, well, Mr. Blonde would never do anything. That's like, it's these trusting relationships and friendships where both of them are so clouded, and then you get all these men who... You know, four out of the six of them are consummate professionals, but they're going to end up killing each other over their bonds that they've established with the rest of the group.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's really fair to say of this is a semi-recurring theme. And and Mm -hmm. whether it is true, you know, actual like homosexual affinity or tendencies, or if it's just these bonds that they have as, I don't know, criminals, men, whatever it is, something that is bonding them and definitely clouding their judgment, I think is fair to say i think the only one again who doesn't have those ties in this moment is though mr blonde where what matters to him is torturing this guy for seemingly no real reason other than he even says i just i just get off on torturing cops i'm into i'm into hurting cops and like I don't think that there's much more to dig into there. You know what I mean? Like this is a sociopath. This is what this guy cares about to, you know, against the logic of all other, uh, all other things in the situation of why this could be a bad idea, why this would Mm -hmm. be, you know, detrimental to their, to their safety, to their cause, to their potential for being found out, arrested, charged, whatever, all the things he doesn't really care. He just wants to torture this guy in a really morbid way. And, you know, he's literally dancing around while he does it. So mm-hmm. it's uh, Stephen Wright makes his appearance, introducing <laughs> this song, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You, which is, man, what a song for a torture scene. I just... It's iconic at this point, right? It is. Right? It's iconic. It is iconic. And I think it's equally iconic because of the dance. You know what I mean? <laughs> the like... Yeah, you the, his joy...
0: Of the yeah. what he the the joy he takes in this moment is definitely it feeds into you know how iconic this scene is. I will say that in this the five or so minutes leading up to this torture scene, we get the the most I wrote down the most nineties few minutes because we get these punching sound effects that are straight out of every like early 90s action movie those made me giggle we also get nice guy eddie walking in in the most 90s windbreaker and humongous mobile phone i've ever seen i know so i i
1: I marked out big for those uh apparently that's his actual windbreaker. chris penn's windbreaker r.i.p chris penn sorry chris penn yeah so you know he comes in hot And uh, I think we have a lot of back and forth here that honestly, for the sake of time, we we won't dig into. But the moral of the story is nobody agrees on who the rat is. Everybody's, you know, pointing literally the guns at each other. And I think Mm -hmm. what's interesting is that, you know, this is a guy, nice guy, Eddie, who definitely has some biases in this situation. And he's coming in without all the information is i think what it comes down to he just doesn't know what happened on the scene and to your point he is he is on mr blonde's side no matter what he's also on daddy's side can we have a sidebar about calling your father daddy when you are a grown-ass man i need it to (laughs) not uh super gross i hate it it gives me maybe it's a mobster
0: thing i feel like aj called tony soprano daddy a few times during the sopranos
1: let me also rephrase that i don't mean a grown ass man i mean a grown ass adult when women or men <laughs> call their father daddy as grown adults it gives me the heebie-jeebies i don't know why so that really grosses me out he is he has this whole bias about the people in the room and he's ready to kill people over it yeah. you know he's ready to literally shoot them you know dead over it and what ends up happening
0: We've got one more big thing to go over, I think. Okay. we get to the climax, I'll allow that's it. okay. Because as they leave, we see blonde torturing the cop. He's going to shoot this cop, and God, does it not? It does not pay to be named Marvin in a Quentin no. Tarantino movie because this poor cop gets tortured, gets his ear cut off, eventually gets killed. And then in Pulp Fiction, Marvin gets shot
1: in the face. So don't Don't be Marvin in a Tarantino. If Tom
0: Tarantino sends you a script
1: and is like, hey, do you want to play Marvin? No, don't do it. Also, Marvin immediately very concerned with his looks. Can we just sidebar for a second? How do I look? What do you mean, how do I look? You just (laughs) got your ear cut off. Do you think you look great, bro? No. No.
0: (laughs) I do like, though, when Orange yells at him and is like, I'm fucking dying and you're you care about like how you look like he gets fucking pissed. But with that in mind, we segue to the Mr. Orange flashback, which I think is one of the most interesting parts of the film for me of finding out Orange has been the rat this whole time. The guy who's been bleeding out on the floor, we get the story of how he sort of infiltrated and we see sort of how he built a little bit of trust here and how some of it, and we get the most, I think this might be the longest flashback in the film. We yeah, get like a good 10, long. 15 minutes of this.
1: Yeah, there and there you get his commode story, which I'm not even gonna go into. It was like very anticlimactic for me. We spend a lot of time. I mean, it's it's fun. It's not it's not like it's not a fun addition, but we spend a lot of time invested in him learning the commode story. Okay, and but I as a former form-
0: theater teacher, I appreciated the commode story hey, because it's like here's how you memorize kid <laughs>
1: who had to memorize lines. Hey, shout out to my theater kid homies. This was absolutely what life was like. Right, you were yes. walking around in all the places. memorizing. Memorizing lines for days. So 100% the realism is there for sure. But I also just expected something slightly more interesting from the commode story. It was very anticlimactic in the like what it really happened. I remember thinking cute puppy and being super (laughs) excited to see the German Shepherd. I will uh, say
0: that I like the way that Tarantino though the way he plays this out of there's sort of a flashback within a flashback here because the initial shot is him sitting with I guess his coworker, I don't another cop and talking about how he's in on the deal.
1: And that's I he think says, it's his boss. You know what I mean? Okay. I think it's his it, like well his it, it's his almost. handler, his boss, whomever, yeah, and he's telling him how he's in and and he's giving and then he says did you use the commode story? did you use the commode and story? then we yeah. flash
0: back and we see it and the way that tarantino tells that is we see him getting the script the first time and nope. sort of practicing it then we see him in his room practicing the script then we see him practicing it with the handler again and then we see him telling it live and the way that he breaks that up yeah. of the story being told throughout these different settings and then you get to the point where there's a little bit meta cutting, to be honest
1: of, yeah you know because it's yeah.
0: cutting to a recorded video version of this story that never really happened. I, I did quote, I can't do air quotes in a podcast, right? No. But this story he, that never guys, really happened, he did
1: air quotes in case you missed it. <laughs> this beer is delicious. It is delicious. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a cute story and it, and it plays. Okay. I just, I just wanted, like, I just wanted, was waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's all. That's all. But that's fair. But I think, but I think it's good. I like, I like the flashback. I like that you get more invested in this guy in the flashback. Um, I also like that you do get to see him and Mr. White bonding and prepping. Mm -hmm. And so you get a little bit more of that story of like why they're already such homies, you know, and how Mr. White's like, Hey, it can't be him, you know? And it's because they're friends and they're shooting the shit and they're spending hours in the, in the car prepping for this thing. And it's, you know, it just, it kind of speaks to like the humanity of these folks, even if they're hardened criminals and they're supposed to just be professionals they're, they're yeah. not they're also just people
0: yeah they're human I, I like the scene when he's first leaving to go get in the car we get sort of a, a taxi driver homage there of him talking to himself in the mirror and saying like they don't know you're gonna be fine and hyping himself yeah. up of like hey you're in the shit now don't get caught but we also get to my earlier points we get a scene of him digging a wedding ring out of a coin jar and putting it on how did you read that
1: I think that was just part of his, his undercover character. I don't think it was intended to be... You know, I don't think he's actually married. This yeah. guy has comic book accoutrement all over his apartment. He's not <laughs> married. Uh, wow. Me, me you are you.
0: Her- You're breaking a lot of hearts out there today. I'm McKenzie. not. I'm just
1: saying, like, I... <laughs> I know how these things work and I have a lot of nerdy things all over my home, but I'm telling you, there's not a lot of people who are like, Hey, let's have a poster of the thing in the living room. Like that's, that's not going to fly more often than not. That's all I'm saying. But, but yeah, I, I don't, I think it was a prop for sure, but I think it was yeah. a prop that he had used as the point. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, it has clearly been established at some earlier point in the timeline. And so he's got to kind of commit to it was kind of my read on it.
0: Yeah, I I think that's probably my favorite theory of the bunch is the ring is his reminder of right now I'm someone else. So I'm personally not married,
1: but it's my reminder This is the persona that I am playing, yeah.
0: On the flip side, or just to sort of add a little more evidence to my thing, this might be a little bit of a stretch. But I thought that maybe if he was a formerly married man who then, you know, discovered that he was gay maybe this would be sort of a cover of, like, I don't want these gangsters who are pulling this heist, you know, not the most accepting men in the world, to know know that I'm gay, gay, so let me put on a ring, tell them I'm married. Who knows, you know, what that means to the Mr. White story. And again, guys, I'm not saying I believe this 100%. I'm just saying, if you want to read it this way, the evidence is there.
1: Listen, the beauty of all forms of art is that you get the luxury of interpreting it however the fuck you want. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting interpretation of why potentially these things could be happening and i think it's absolutely true that you could use it as a shield whatever Mm -hmm. the shield is right like maybe it's a shield for for homosexuality maybe it's a hey i don't want to be distracted on this job by women or whatever else is happening right like i just need to do the job and this is a part of that this is the prop that helps me do that for whatever reason so i i do think it's worth looking at and wondering why it happens for sure
0: but to your point earlier on we we get these scenes of the initial bonding of the team we get them getting their names we get Mm -hmm. mr pink being a little salty about oh my god
1: (laughs) the mr pink with the name went on forever and i'm like listen if i'm lawrence tierney aka joe i would have smacked the shit out of this guy like can we move on your name is mr pink kid
0: so Mackenzie, what would be your mr or mrs or miss name if you were pulling a bank heist what would be your color
1: Okay, I know that they were fighting over this in the movie, so there's going to be much debate here. But obviously it would be Mr. Black or Miss Black. Oh,
0: wow. You're one of those. Everybody wants to be Mr. or Mrs. Black. It's not
1: that. It's my literal favorite color. This is just a true fact about me as a person. You know this. This is my favorite color. (laughs) I wear black 80% of the time. So, yeah, I think it would be Miss Black or Mrs. Black or, you know, whatever. Okay. What about yours?
0: I mean, my favorite color is red, but I feel like Mr. Red doesn't have much of a ring to it. I'd probably go with like a shade, like a Mr. Burgundy. You know, Mr. Ooh, Burgundy. Ooh, I like a Mr.
1: Burgundy. You he has thought three about this? Colors. Don't lie. You were like, hmm, yeah, yeah, what's is... the move? <laughs> When was I'm, the
0: last time we recorded? Like six days ago. I've had. Six I didn't days get to
1: time think to think about mine. I yours sounds so much cooler than mine in retrospect. But I love a Mister Burgundy. I think that's a great choice.
0: <laughs> so we have these scenes of them bonding. I really liked the initial scene in the car where they're driving and just sort of again another random Tarantino offshoot conversation. But you sort of see Orange looking for his moment to speak of, I don't want to get caught here because I will be murdered. But him sort of getting comfortable. And then he starts They're having a conversation about what actress played. They're talking about movies. And he's like, that's
1: not the actress, you dumbass. Yeah.
0: So he he chimes in and then they start cracking wise and you see him loosen up. I thought that that scene, Mm -hmm. even though it does go on to your point, a little bit long with a lot of the stuff in here. I thought that was cool to see this moment of we're not going to see the heist. But we want to show you what's important, which is how this guy earned their trust. Then my favorite Kaitel line in the entire movie is when he's talking about cutting off fingers and how to get people to talk and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this pause and he says, I'm hungry. Let's go get a taco.
1: Not tacos.
0: Singular. Let's go get a taco.
1: A taco. Yeah. I don't know. It's Wedos talking about tacos. You know what I mean. I just was not. I was like, okay. I'm a little bit of snob. Of a snob. You know, we're we here in Austin have the best tacos. So I was just like, eh, I bet it's gross. That was my reaction. I was like, I bet it's not a great taco but we're gonna like I don't alienate.
0: actually believe this but maybe the reason he said let's get a taco is he wanted to split it while they're <gasps> holding hands see so. I see you peppering in your maybe, little theory they, maybe throughout. they eat their way to the middle like Lady and the Tramp
1: Ooh. oh wouldn't that be adorable <laughs> I have in my notes the bromance is real so yes. I I think there is some real deep love here for sure yeah. maybe they just shared the taco but you know then there's this really I mean I think the crux of this bromance if we're bringing your whole theory to a, to a close here is there's this very serious betrayal that happens you know and this this is this I would say is the real climax of the movie of Mm -hmm. their moment where as a point of honor is the way that I read it is Mr. Orange admits that he's the cop to Mr. White when everyone is dead and it's, it's him and Mr. White and that's it. And, you know, maybe the cops are coming in. Maybe they're not because as we know, Joe just came in. So in theory, they should be moving in any minute now. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't owe him that at that moment per se, he's probably going to be rescued or he's going to die to be honest. Right? Like he's going to die from bleeding out or Mr. White's going to die before he can tell him there's nothing making him confess. But he chooses to. And I think it's this very honor among thieves moment of you just sacrificed two people that you cared about to protect me, a man you don't know well, and maybe are in love with genuinely. Maybe that's what it is. That was going
0: to be my point. Did he say it honor amongst thieves or did he tell him for another reason?
1: I, I think it could be either way, right? I mean, it can be you just sacrifice something for me even if i don't feel this way about you who who's to say it's not an unrequited thing right or who's to say it's not a hey i love you like a brother
0: yeah, I think, you know, D- D- Janelle disagreed with my theory as well. She read it more as just a bond, as you said, between brothers, especially with the fact that throughout the film, Mr. White refers to Mr. Orange's kid. So yeah. it does feel as almost like a, I'm going to see brother vibes. through the ranks, a big brother type yeah. thing. So if this whole time you guys have been listening to me and thinking I'm full of shit, you're not alone. My girlfriend also <laughs> pokes holes in my but theory. But that's like but a regular
1: Tuesday, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> anything to say about the entire shootout before we get to that moment like you know obviously everyone shows back up Mr. Blonde is now dead and we get this standoff anything about the standoff itself that stands out to you
1: nothing that's shocking I think generally like emotions are heightened people are being protective of their people as anonymous I think one of the big notes throughout this is just as anonymous as they are all trying to be they're not actually yeah. right. They have not only connections to one another from what they know about each other, whether it be their names and Joe knows Mr. White and Joe knows nice guy Eddie and whatever all this this stuff or their familia or whatever it is. They know each other to some degree, at least part of this crew does. But beyond that, I think the, the thing that resonates is they have come to know each other in other ways as well. And they have, again, established these bonds one way or another and they're choosing sides. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the big thing here is they're choosing sides and Mr. White is choosing Mr. Orange. Yep. Um, and I, again, I, we may joke like that your theory might be garbage or whatever, but maybe it's not. I think it's a very worthy theory to consider of there is in a short amount of time some sort of love here and it whether it's whether it's homosexual love or if it's truly just brotherly love it's a quick turnaround for them to That's, have bonded yes. the way that they have and for them to be willing to literally sacrifice and die their for lives. each other we, i mean yeah. we
0: don't know how long this heist planning was going on but let's say it even was what six months is that long enough for you to develop, you know, a relationship, a friendship with somebody so and much And I think that it's implied sacrificed? that
1: it's not even that long. Yeah, you know felt what quick I mean? To
0: me, I'm not entirely yeah.
1: sure. But either, even if it was, to your point, I think it's fair to say that that's quick, right? Yeah. And, but, but I think it's even less. And, and so I think some of that is instinctual, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Like they have had, they've developed these instinctual bonds with one another that are very important to them, again, enough to die for. Yeah. And I think that, in and of itself again even if it's just a brotherly love um is a really poignant start of part of the story and it is something that is pretty heartbreaking in that moment of did he or did he not kill mr orange i think he did because of that news I and think i think, he think he that's up for debate yeah
0: i think you know it's up for debate <laughs> but i will say that probably like the most heartbreaking moment of this is when they are both sitting there on the ground shot, bleeding out, they both know they're likely to die here. We get this shot of Mr. White sort of massaging Mr. Orange's face, like, again, comforting him in this very, like, you know, yeah. uh, I don't know what term you want to use for it, but just affectionate, affectionate way. Yeah, soothing. Yeah, affectionate way. Yeah. And then Mr. Orange gives him the news, and you see, he continues to sort of stroke his face, but then it becomes a more angry,
1: you know, when you but he kind of wails mm-hmm. and that's the thing about it that actually got me of like it doesn't feel just angry to me painful. it feels painful sad the betrayal of it is, is palpable and it i don't know that his first inst- first instinct is anger i definitely feel mm-hmm. like it's pain and the question mark for me is does he get quick enough for this scenario and what's obviously about to come in does he get to anger Mm -hmm. quick enough to make the decision that it's implied that maybe he made you can't really you can't tell 100 percent. at least for me and maybe that's like I I joke that I'm always a pessimist or or at least a realist uh, but maybe that's like the deep-seated optimism of me where I felt like Maybe he couldn't do it. I, I, personally, and... I would read it as he
0: does. I think they intentionally, maybe for budget reasons, sort of zoom in on Mr. White's face so that we don't see the trigger be pulled on like a full on head shot because he's got his gun to Mr. Orange's head. But based on the timing of the shots you hear there, you hear one bullet and then you hear a bunch of other bullets being shot and you see White flail back.
1: Yeah, but there's theories that that's because the, the cops are already in there. There's theories that that's a warning shot. I mean I suppose but what's the point of giving a warning shot if then you rattle off 20 more well they're like saying freeze they're saying freeze and then he and then they keep shooting him and there's multiple cops so you don't know like what one cop does and another cop you know gets trigger happy or whatever I just I like that you don't know I guess is my thing I don't want to assume that I know one way or the other is, is maybe my thing I like that it's open to at least some level of interpretation of do you think he lost he was so betrayed and so angry which again would be valid to just straight up kill him? Or do you think he doesn't get the chance to either decide or doesn't get the chance to pull the trigger because of the other cops coming in? I think,
0: it, I think it's interesting yeah, either I way. Mean, the cops come in and say, drop the gun. Don't do it. We'll blow you away. Blah, blah, blah. He's, they're giving him options. So the fact that they do eventually start firing while this person has a gun to the head, I don't know. That speaks to, I'm not, we don't need to decide who's right or wrong here. I think the more interesting question which ties into our our topic last week of Hateful Eight, where we said this probably has the highest mortality rate of any Tarantino film. Do you think Mr. Pink survives? Because we hear him run outside, we hear a bunch of sirens and gunshots outside before the cops come into the building. So any guesses there? What's your interpretation of Mr. Pink's end of story?
1: Uh, I think he... he- gets away uh gets away I, I think that like he, he dodges all those well bullets. not gets away like gets gets out of the no 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 gets gets away gets like I think he gets out alive okay. that's what I'm saying he's I think arrested. he gets out alive uh I think he's arrested I think he goes to jail you know very likely uh I don't think this is supposed to be a win for anyone I think that's yeah. the point of not only this film but a lot of Tarantino's films right like there's no real winners in some of these stories for all kinds of reasons or there are very few. Uh, but I loved Steve Buscemi's take on this, his, you know, his joke or interview, I think maybe 20 years later or 25 years later or something like that after after this was um, that he likes to liken it to that this guy got free uh, and his penance is that he is now working in that diner in Pulp Fiction, and not, <laughs> it's a and not getting tipped well as a result because <laughs> he was the non-tipper. And I just sort of yeah. love that fate for him, to be honest. Yeah,
0: we've come full circle from a couple weeks ago. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's, that's Reservoir Dogs, y'all.
1: That's Reservoir Dogs, guys. It's It's intense. It's the shortest of Tarantino's films, as we said, but boy, does it pack a fucking punch Uh in a in a short period of time. And we've talked about it almost as long as it fucking ran. So (laughs) with that in mind, we're going to wrap up really quickly with uh, our respective ratings. So what, do, what did you think, Lamar? Where where did would you put this? I got to
0: reflect back
1: on my last few weeks of
0: Tarantino-Vember. So I know I gave Pulp Fiction, I think, a 9.9, 9, and Inglorious, maybe like a 9.8 or 9.6. Hateful Eight, I think I gave like a 7.5 on a first watch and an 8 on a second watch. So this one, I'll go 8.5. It's not perfect. It's Tarantino trying a lot of stuff and sort of finding his footing as an individual filmmaker, and he does a lot of stuff really really well and we see some flashes of how great he's going to become yeah but i think there are there are things to find not wrong with it but things that could have been done better and it does feel like to your point earlier a little broy and a little over the top but yeah i i dig it it's not perfect but i'd give it like an 8.5
1: yeah, I think it's those are all great points. I won't reiterate them all, but I agree with most of them. I think I'll just uh, wrap it up with I am going to continue to be the Russian judge in this scenario. Apparently, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna come in at like a seven, seven and a half. Okay. Uh, I found, you know, I, again, I will attribute it to like budget limitations. The creativity there is there. The core is there. There's all kinds of things there that make this a great flick and a, and a really good writing and 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 a precursor to all the great work to come i think from tarantino um but i think it's his weakest showing to be honest for for lots of lots of reasons as far as production value and and stuff like that and even just you know some shooting errors and things that you just learn about as you watch it so uh i would say like seven seven and a half but it's it's an incredible first showing for a first time director i think there's no argument there
0: when you say that part of your rating had to do with production values, if there were a transformer in Reservoir Dogs, how much would that affect your score? Like, would you <laughs> add like a 0. 0.5 or only like a 3
1: I'm going to go like a point two you know it doesn't do a lot for me the transformers but uh but it does something it does something yeah so do better quentin (laughs) yeah get a fucking transformer in there we're done with you no we're (laughs) just kidding okay well you guys have been so patient with us again we talked about this one for a while thank you for listening also uh for sitting through four weeks of tarantino and tarantino members first annual we hope occurrence Mm -hmm. uh i think this was a great one we'll have to come back to it next year around this time yet again what do you think
0: this has been a blast and i so appreciate you being so willing to to say fuck it and let's do this for four weeks but i think that for december oh yeah i don't want every month to be like a theme month we don't no. you know the obvious thing would be let's do some christmas movies we might do some of that but i feel like we need a little bit of the a feminine touch after how much tarantino we've done what do you think
1: y'all we need to inject some estrogen into this podcast because yes. it has been four weeks of bros bromances a lot of just really intense I think material. So definitely come back the first couple weeks of December. We're going to lighten the load a little. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to do a couple conversations. We're going to have some, we're going to talk about some clueless. We're going to talk Sophia Coppola. We're going to have some nice lighthearted content, really good, strong content, but still some lightness nevertheless. And then, yeah, to Lamar's point, we will be doing a little bit of some holiday stuff. Nothing too crazy. We do want to touch on some of that for you guys, but uh, for now, Go ahead and uh, have a drink and watch a thing. Cheers. Oh,
0: yeah. Later. Cheers. Remote cheers. Clink. Remote Clink. cheers. Clink.